0: Welcome back to The Law with D.K. Williams. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is episode six. We're going to talk about McCulloch versus Maryland, which was decided in 1819, which by my math Is 199 years ago. The case was written by Chief Justice John Marshall. And as I like to call this case, enumerated powers. We don't need no stinking enumerated powers. We're the feds. We can do what we want. This is another incredibly bad decision that is entrenched in our jurisprudence, like rebar in a concrete foundation of a dilapidated farmhouse that needs to be raised, dug out, gutted, regraded and returned to the original condition. The original condition, of course, is the constitution. As the words are actually used with actual like meanings of the English language, it's like English isn't their mother tongue, yet it is. It is important to understand the words of your mother tongue. So hopefully that's something we can contribute to here. At The Law with DK Williams, I am DK Williams. Always a pleasure to be back here. One of the reasons this case is so important is that it held that Congress and the federal government could establish and operate a federal bank. It was the second United States bank, even though the enumerated powers in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, say it with me, we should all know these by now, does not say anything about a bank. The federal government is given specific powers, none of them are a bank, yet the Supreme Court said that it was cool for the Congress and the executive branch, well, for the Congress to establish a United States bank and for the executive branch to administer it and run it, even though that's not an enumerated power, it's okay. And we'll talk about their reasoning and how they use the words and how they use the language to bastardize the actual intent of it. So there's two main questions that the court dealt with here back in this eighteen nineteen case. One was does Congress have the authority under the Constitution, to incorporate the Bank of the United States, the second Bank of the United States. The first Bank of the United States pretty much went along for 20 years. That was its term under the original congressional authorization. Nobody really challenged it, or at least it didn't get to the Supreme Court. Politically, it was challenged, but judicially, it certainly did not get to the Supreme Court. And that's one of the things that Marshall and the Supreme Court talks about in this case. So one, can Congress do that legitimately under the Constitution? And if it can, Can Maryland, the state that brought this case, or tried to, in essence, shut it down in its state by taxing it, can a state tax the U.S. Bank if it is legitimate under the Constitution? Now, from my perspective, once you answer that first question, is the United States Bank established by Congress, operated by the executive branch of the United States government, authorized by the Constitution, if you answer that yes, the game is over. It doesn't matter what you say for the second answer, because you know the second answer is going to be no, the states cannot tax it, and in essence, shut it down by taxing it. And we'll get into that a little bit more, but that's where the phrase, the power to tax is the power to destroy, comes from. Is from this case. So the Supreme Court admits the power to operate a bank is not listed in Article 1, Section 8, but operating a bank is necessary and proper, which is in the Constitution, necessary and proper to implement congressional power to tax and spend. Tax and spend is one of the enumerated powers of Congress. And you might say, no, it's not necessary or proper, necessary and proper, and is the important conjunction. It is not necessary and proper to own a bank, to operate a bank, in order to tax and spend. But who what are we? What do we know? We're not in Supreme Court. We're not smart enough to realize that it is necessary and proper. So let's talk about that. And again, I'll bring up my MBA example. If you let the Lakers call their own fouls against the Nuggets, even if they are really trying to be fair, The Lakers are going to call things in their favor over the long run, which is what happens with the Supreme Court deciding what powers the federal government has. They are the federal government. So what are they going to do over the long run? They're going to call things in their favor. So, with the United States Supreme Court deciding what powers the U.S. government has, it makes perfect sense that the federal government's powers have really done nothing but grow. And that's another reason why the concept of state nullification is so crucial. All parts of this republic are responsible for enforcing the Constitution. Federal legislative branch, the Congress, which is largely given up. They don't even care anymore. They just do whatever they want to do. They don't pretend that there's any constitutional justification for it. The executive branch, which also doesn't care... They make their decisions based on what's going to get them elected, not on whether something is constitutional or not. not. The judiciary, which almost routinely rubber stamps what the legislative branch has passed and what the executive branch has decided they want to do. And now also the administrative branch which isn't an official branch, but it might as well be, which is another creation of Congress and the executive branch, which has allowed this to continue on, which is the Supreme Court has rubber stamped and let it grow, which is really not answerable to anyone. The administrative branch exists... Because the legislative and executive branches have washed their hands of their authority, handed their constitutional power over to an unelected group of bureaucrats, which is a very progressive notion, they've created this autonomous branch of government that almost literally answers to no one. So, not just the three official branches, executive, legislative, judicial, are all supposed to enforce the Constitution on their own terms of the way they believe the Constitution is to be applied, but the states are supposed to enforce it as well. The states created the federal government. The states have a say, if not the most important say. Of course, that's not the way it has evolved because the states have let the federal government usurp the power. The 10th Amendment says if the federal government was not given the power under Article I, Section 8, or somewhere else in the Constitution, then it's the state's power. And the federal government has taken away all of the state's power, almost all of the state's power, and the states have just rolled over And as I've mentioned before, because this is an important theme that I'm going to keep hammering on, when the feds fail to enforce the Constitution as it's written, the states must do it. This is not some radical, insane, dangerous idea. For example, when FDR, the executive, wanted to round up Japanese Americans and put them in camps, the U.S. Supreme Court said that was constitutional, and that is abject nonsense. How is it dangerous for the state to say, no, you can't do that? It's not dangerous at all. The dangerous idea is saying we have to do what the feds tell us to do regardless. Of whether or not it's constitutional—that's the nonsense. And when the Supreme Court said in Korematsu the Korematsu case that it was constitutional to round up Americans just because they had Japanese ancestry, the states should have refused to allow it. Local sheriffs should have protected the Japanese Americans in their county. Local governments and state governments should have stopped the feds from enforcing this racist, unconstitutional policy. So don't tell me this progressive nonsense that nullification is racist. No, the federal government was racist. The states needed to protect the Americans in this case. Korematsu is a great example of why this nonsense of everything locally controlled or locally powered is racist. Is just a farce. This contrary notion that only the states are racist and the federal government is never racist or or inappropriate or improper is a joke. And we must point that out whenever we get the chance to do it. So let's get into the details, the basic importance of McCullough versus Maryland, which like Marbury v. Madison, which we already talked about, everybody's names begin with an M, so don't get them confused. McCullough v. Maryland deals with Congress starting the National Bank. Maryland said, in essence, hey, y'all can't do that. The federal government does not have that power enumerated in the Constitution. But pointing this out as a quick, as an aside to say, hey, Congress, feds, where do you get the constitutional power to do this? Pointing that out today is like speaking Swahili to the Amish. They're just going to look at you like they're in complete darkness. What are are you saying? And it goes back to when Nancy Pelosi was asked what part of the Constitution authorized Obamacare. That's how she looked. And she laughed. The notion that a federal program needed constitutional authority was like a foreign language to her. It meant nothing. The words she was hearing made no sense to her or to most of America, for that matter. And that's the problem. We have to understand the intent of the Constitution, what the words actually say, and how they've been bastardized in modern jurisprudence and in modern history. So we can decide if the Constitution is legit or not. Do we want the Constitution to continue? We have to know what it actually says, not the way we're using it. If we don't understand the language, we cannot understand what it is supposed to do. So with that in mind, Maryland challenged the constitutionality of the Second Federal Bank. Congress authorized it, so they must have thought it was okay. The executive opened it and operated it, so they must have thought it was okay. Then the Supreme Court said, sure, even though a bank isn't listed as one of the listed powers in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution... All of the people who ratified the Constitution must have meant to say bank, even though they didn't. Even though they did say post office, they must have just forgotten bank, because that is something the federal government should be able to do. The the sophistry they used, let's be accurate, the sophistry the Supreme Court used to justify a federal bank was the necessary and proper clause. And this is in this important part of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, the last section after it lists all of the things the federal government can legitimately do, it says, quote, the Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, the powers they just listed. So which one of these foregoing powers, those listed in Article One, Section 8, prior to Clause 18, make it necessary and proper for the federal government to open and operate a federal bank? Well, the Supreme Court said, and the federal government argued that it was the power to tax and spend. If that seems odd to you, it is. You can tax and you can spend without a bank. Eventually, what the Supreme Court says is, it helps. And if it helps, it's necessary, which is absurd, a complete bastardization of the English language. But that's what they do. So on April 10th of 1816, Congress passed this bill authorizing the second bank of the United States. The first bank was Alexander Hamilton's baby, right? And it had a 20-year term, and it pretty much ran its course and wasn't challenged, not judicially. It certainly didn't make it to the Supreme Court. Politically, it was challenged, But the Federalist-controlled Congress. Hamilton was a Federalist. George Washington was, in essence, a Federalist. And so it passed, and it was operated. There are lots of arguments in favor of it. Hamilton wrote extensively about why he thought it was a good idea, why it was constitutional, and why it was legit. Jefferson opposed it. And here's a detail that I think is important about this. And this is from the case. It's part of the argument um, explaining the issues. Hamilton proposed establishing the initial bank through a sale of $10 million in stock to which the United States would purchase the first $2 million. All right, So they're going to own 20% of it. The remaining $8 million would be available to the public. And, and by the public, they mean rich people that can afford it. Hamilton, he could see that, hey, people might not want the U.S. government to spend $2 million on this. And frankly, the government did not have $2 million. So Hamilton said that the U.S. government would make their stock purchases using money lit to it by the bank. Okay, and the federal government would pay that back in 10 equal annual installments. So the federal government is getting their 20%, their $2 million of the $10 million stock shares without putting up any money. And who's gonna get to make these decisions about what the US bank does? The first one, all right, well, they, any of them, but we're talking about the first one right now. Who's gonna get to decide that? Ultimately, the shareholders do, right? And who are the shareholders, the rich people that were able to buy into the US bank? And they have to be connected as well, connected private rich people own 80% of this bank. The federal government owns 20% of it. And who are the shareholders going to favor? Who are the federal elected officials going to favor that own the 20% or are, are responsible for exercising that 20%? They are going to favor other rich and connected people that can help them out. This is how corporatism works. This is why government should not ever be involved in public finance or public corporations. And when the progressives today cry for more federal power, the same things happen. Burning the rest of complain about Wall Street controlling Congress, and it does. Their problem is they propose giving Congress more power, and that's absurd. If you can't see why that is, think about it for a second. Just like Elizabeth Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act that she's floated recently, which would require every U.S. company with more than a billion dollars in revenue to obtain a federal charter to operate, and they'd have to meet certain rules in order to get this federal charter. Guess who's going to get those federal charters? Those with connections, those with money, and not you. And guess what the conditions of those charters are going to be and who's going to decide what those conditions are going to be it's going to people the rich and the connected it's not going to be you so trying to give the federal government more power over the private sector doesn't solve a problem it just creates additional problems there's little more dangerous notion than this absurd belief that people in government are any more virtuous than those outside of government now i understand the desire to believe that it's like the desire to believe in santa claus the difference being that adults don't believe in santa claus They just believe in the government. As Ludwig von Mises said, quote, if one rejects laissez-faire on account of man's fallibility and moral weakness, one must for the same reason also reject every kind of government action. End quote. You can't give government power if you think man is fallible. It's very simple. If we need government because man is fallible, well, you can't give government power because man is fallible. And of course, a rather important issue here or important fact is that corporations Cannot kill you, not legally, but the government can. So let's give more power to the entity that can kill you legally if you don't comply. And less power to these private entities that cannot kill you legally. It's Alice in Wonderland, absurd. All right, so who are the named people here? Well, you only have one named person, McCulloch, because the other party is the state of Maryland. McCulloch was, in essence, the guy who ran the main branch of the Bank of the United States, the second bank of the United States in Maryland. So he's the guy running it. The Maryland legislature put a bunch of taxes on the bank, basically trying to shut it down. The second U.S. bank in Maryland did not pay these taxes. Maryland sued them. McCulloch was the name defendant in that case. Judgment in state court went against McCulloch saying, yeah, you got to pay these taxes. Not you, but the U.S. bank has to pay these taxes. Highest Maryland Court of Appeals agreed. Then the United States government, the the second bank of the U.S., appealed to the United States Supreme Court. So the second United States bank was authorized by Act of Congress in 1816. In 1818, two years later, Maryland passed, quote, an act to impose a tax on all banks or branches thereof in the state of Maryland, not chartered by the state legislature. So the second national bank was based in Philly. They opened a branch in Baltimore in 1817, one year before Maryland passed this act, trying to shut it down. And it's funny because James Williams McCulloch, the named party in the case, is referred to as a cashier of the branch. He's actually more than that, but he's just called a cashier in the case. The more I read about these cases, I see some of these names that just reappear over and over again. Relatively small pool of people that are involved in a lot of the stuff. The lawyer for the United States Bank was Daniel Webster, whom you may have heard of. It was stipulated there was no dispute that the Second National Bank did not pay $15,000 for the right to operate the branch pursuant to the Maryland statute. In Webster's argument, he said that the question is whether Congress can constitutionally possess the power to incorporate the bank, and it is a question of the utmost magnitude, deeply interesting to the government itself, as well as to individuals. Quite the understatement, Daniel Webster. One of the arguments Webster makes in favor of the federal government, in favor of the existence of the Second United States Bank, are that, and I'll quote him, at least the written part of his argument. He said, the argument's drawn from the Constitution in favor of this power to have the bank, were stated and exhausted in that first discussion when Hamilton was trying to get the First Bank going. Back to the quote, They were exhibited with characteristic perspicuity and force by the First Secretary of the Treasury in his report to the President of the United States. First Secretary, obviously, is Alexander Hamilton. Of course, he was young, scrappy, and hungry, just like his country. And his name was Alexander Hamilton. Part of the argument in favor of the bank goes that the First Congress created it, 1791 almost every succeeding congress acted and legislated on the presumption of the existence of the first bank therefore the congress was saying hey it must be must be cool right It must be legit because we, we keep assuming it is Webster admits that some individuals have doubted that it wasn't legit and nevertheless the executive government has acted on it courts of law have enforced contracts and loan enforcing loans debt collection that type of thing and Webster says that hey They might have argued about it then, but at this point, it's a subtle question. My thought is, so what? Even if if everybody in high school algebra gets a problem wrong, it's still wrong. If they get it wrong all year long, it's still wrong. Just because it's been going on that way for 10 years or 20 or 30 years doesn't make it right. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter how many times it's been wrong. It's still wrong. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court did not agree with that. But... If the Supreme Court is looking for a reason to prop up the existence of the bank or legitimize the existence of the bank, that's something they're going to listen to. And they did. One of the arguments made by Webster on behalf of the bank was, quote, It was not their intention, the original Congress, who well, the Constitutional Convention, who passed the and ratified the Constitution and each of the states that did. It was not their intention in those cases to enumerate particulars. And so he's saying that they gave him the power to tax and, and spend. They didn't say exactly how you could do that. And that's cool. And I, you know, I, I don't argue with that statement. For example, the post office is enumerated power. The feds could hire mailmen. That's necessary and proper. And it doesn't say the feds can hire mailmen. It says they can operate a post office, but it's necessary and proper to hire mailmen. They could rent horses or they could buy horses to deliver the mail. Okay, that's necessary and proper. They could set the rate for the mail, necessary and proper. Those particulars did not need to be specifically listed because, again, they're necessary and proper if you're going to run a post office, which is specifically granted to Congress to do. So to say a bank is necessary and proper to collect taxes is a complete non sequitur. So the argument goes, Congress is authorized to pass all laws necessary and proper to carry into execution the enumerated powers conferred upon it. Nobody argues that, but does a national bank qualify? It's clearly not one of the numerator powers. It's not listed like the post office. The constitutional ratifiers knew how to put in something like the post office, but they left out bank. The pro-bank argument goes on. They say, If Congress could use no means, but such as were absolutely indispensable to the existence of a granted power, the government would hardly exist, end quote. Well, that's kind of the point. It would exist, but it would be limited as intended The argument in favor of the bank, which the Supreme Court ultimately adopted, was that a bank is a proper and suitable instrument to assist the operations of the government in the collection and disbursement of revenue, the regulation of currency, and as being part of the trade and exchange between the states. So they're saying it's proper and suitable. They don't even bother to say necessary, which is what the Constitution requires. It doesn't require it to be proper and suitable. It requires it to be necessary. They don't use that word because it's not necessary. I used the word before, but it's true. It is sophistry, which I had to look up to make sure exactly what sophistry is because I like it and I knew what it meant, but exactly it is sophistry. The use of a fallacious argument, especially with the intent of deceiving. So despite the ruling by the Supreme Court, and John Marshall. Maryland was correct, and they should have ignored this decision. Now, as I mentioned, this is not a dangerous idea. It's up to the three branches of the federal government and the states to enforce the Constitution, and the states have allowed the feds to usurp state power. It's not too late to take it back. It's certainly not too late to stop allowing the feds to take more and more power. And progressives right now love this idea of state nullification. Now that Trump was in the White House and Republicans control Congress and the Supreme Court. Sanctuary cities defy federal law. California recently passed its own net neutrality law, which is a misnomer because net neutrality is neutral, like the Patriot Act is patriotic. Still, the point is state nullification of federal law. Progressives love it right now. Look at states like by Colorado, ignoring the federal ban on weed. A quick aside on this and during prohibition, when alcohol was outlawed, the feds had the courtesy and the states had the courtesy to pass an actual amendment like they should have, like is required under the Constitution. But for the drug war, just a federal statute is all they needed. What was the difference? What happened between prohibition and the drug war? Wickard v. Filburn, which we talked about last week. So back to McCullough versus Maryland. The argument goes in favor of the bank. The only question is whether a bank in its known and ordinary operations is capable of being so connected with the finances and revenues of the government as to be fairly within the discretion of Congress. Again, they're completely ignoring the phrase necessary proper and turning it into discretionary and proper. It's a huge difference, and it's an absurd difference. Once they establish this low standard for what Congress can do, they state that Congress has established a bank. And before the act establishing it can be pronounced unconstitutional and void, It must be shown that a bank has no fair connection with the execution of any power or duty of the national government and that its creation is consequently a manifest usurpation, end of quote. Yes, it is a manifest usurpation, because once the court has interpreted necessary into discretionary, all Congress has to do is show that fair connection to the granted power, not a necessary connection, just a fair one. It's absurd. Again, federalism suffered its first major blow in McCulloch versus Maryland and was basically knocked out for good in Wickard. Once the Supreme Court decides that operating in a federal bank is okay, even though it's not an enumerated power, it's necessary and proper, even though it's not necessary, it's just within Congress's discretion. And the second question is whether or not the bank can be taxed by the state. And, of course, it can't be because the power to tax is the power to destroy. And it's important to note that even the argument in favor of the bank by the federal, uh, the pro-federal lawyers, they stated there's no such power expressly granted by the Constitution. They admit that. They're saying it's implied. Specifically, it has been obtained by implication, end quote. You know, given the modern times and the Me Too movement, and and we do need to bring more light into sexual assault, assault of all kind, we need to speak up, we need to protect victims, but McCulloch versus Maryland kind of rejects that. They're saying you don't need actual consent. You don't need express consent. You just need implied consent. You think progressives would not be in favor of that. The Supreme Court decision makes another another reference back to Hamilton, and in Hamilton's defense of the original bank, he says that the bank must be under private not public direction. Under the guidance of individual interest, not public policy. Okay, that's Hamilton's position. And that's the position that the pro-Federal Bank people are taking. Can you see how such an institution is a ripe ground for corporatism, for cronyism, for corruption, when it's under private, not public policy, but it is a federal governmental bank? Those things are inconsistent. I mean, I know Hamilton says they're not, but we know they are. We know how real life works further the argument for the bank goes that congress is prima facie a competent judge of its own constitutional powers if only congress has abdicated all attempts at that notion they certainly have now and i think it's fair to say that they did it way back here as well Congress should have to list the power under which any potential legislation is authorized. Here's a statute, authorized pursuant to Article I, Section 8, Clause, or whatever. Unfortunately, hardly anyone in Congress would have any idea what that meant, and neither would most Americans. They're what, what, what? We have to have an authorization? We just can't do whatever we want? Which is a sad commentary on our educational system. People don't understand that. People think, oh, Congress can do whatever they want. No, they can't. Well, they are, but it's not legitimate. The argument goes on that because of Congress. And the federal government operating a federal bank for 20 years, they say the repeated determinations of the three branches of the national legislature, confirmed by the constant acquiescence of the state sovereignties and of the people for a considerable length of time, argue that the second bank is also constitutional. So they're pointing out that the states have acquiesced and the people have acquiesced. This entirely backs up my premise that the states must not acquiesce. They must object to this usurpation of their power by the federal government. The feds are saying, hey, the states didn't object, so therefore it must be cool. That's why we have to object. It's why the people must object. State legislators must object. State executive must object. The people must object and be loud and be explicit. And here's the biggest part. To the extent possible, refuse to comply. State governments need to refuse to comply, and individuals need to refuse to comply. I know that's hard, but to the extent it's possible, we at least need to make people aware of that possibility. So after discussing the different arguments in favor of the bank and against the bank, Maryland's argument that the bank is not legit under the Constitution, Justice Marshall, writing for the court in its official determination, says, quote, the Constitution of our country, in the most interesting and vital parts, is to be considered The conflicting powers of the government of the Union and of its members, which are the states, as marked, spelled out, in the Constitution are to be discussed. An opinion given, which may essentially influence the great operations of the government. Kind of an understatement. And that we did have Hamilton's National Bank for 20 years is irrelevant. Marshall goes on, quote, The first question made in the cause, has Congress power to incorporate a bank? It has been truly said that this can scarcely be considered as an open question, entirely unprejudiced by the former proceedings of the nation respecting it. So he's pointing out that the first Congress authorized it. Subsequent Congresses have dealt with it and acted as if it was legit. I think a little bit too much emphasis is being put onto that. Because like I said, if it's wrong for 20 years, it's still wrong. But Marshall doesn't agree. He says, It would require no ordinary share of intrepidity, intrepidity, intrepid, I-T-Y, intrepidity to assert that a measure adopted under these circumstances was bold and plain usurpation to which the constitution gave no countenance. If only, again, this, con- th- this assumption that Congress cares if what it does is unconstitutional or constitutional is absurd. And I'll go back to the Alien and Sedition Acts, like I've mentioned before. They're clearly unconstitutional, and the fact that Congress passed them and the president signed them can't change that a whit. So if Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutionally, the fact that they passed the first national bank doesn't mean it's constitutional. That's trying to hoist an argument upon its own petard. Marshall tries to be legit here by saying, he goes on, This government is acknowledged by all to be one of enumerated powers. Well, good. I'm glad, Marshall, you acknowledge that. The principle that can exercise only the powers granted to it would seem too apparent. That principle is now universally admitted. Hey, good. So the bank's not constitutional, right? It's not one of the powers granted to it. But no, that's not what he said. But he does say, before he kind of throws all this out, quote, among the enumerated powers, we do not find that of establishing a bank or creating a corporation. Well, no kidding, Marshall. So how can they say that Congress has the authority to do it? And this is where things really start to, like, fire me up. Quote, there is no phrase in the instrument, the Constitution, which, like the Articles of Confederation, excludes incidental or implied powers. Okay, think about this. Think about the fun that could be had with implied powers. But wasn't that why the 10th Amendment was passed? To stop the feds from deciding they could do whatever it wanted by creating implied powers or incidental powers? That's what the states thought when they ratified it. But no, Marshall pulls this little trick. He says, quote, even the 10th Amendment which was framed for the purpose of quieting the excessive jealousies, which had been excited, omits the word expressly. It does omit the word expressly. Here's what the 10th Amendment says. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So Marshall believes that the 10th Amendment should have read the powers not expressly dedicated to the United States by the Constitution. It's ridiculous. It's like telling your dog walker, you have the authority to walk the dog, give him a treat, pick up after him, and return him to me. That's clear, right? Do you really need to say you have the express authority to do these things? You don't need to say express authority because you've told him what he can do to require the word express in there is just ridiculous. Of course you don't need to say express and neither did the adopters of the Constitution think it was necessary. Think about it. Marshall makes a big deal out of the word expressly being absent in the Tenth Amendment, but you know what other word is not there? The word implicitly is not there either, but Marshall inserts it. That is pure usurpation of state power by the federal government. He continues to go on with the justification of this rewriting of the Constitution by judicial opinion. He says, Although among the enumerated powers of the government, the federal government, we do not find the word bank or incorporation, We find the great powers to lay and collect taxes, to borrow money, to regulate commerce, to declare and conduct a war, and to raise and support armies and navies. End of his explanation of that part. So even though a bank's not there, all of these other powers are, so we can assume they include a bank, even though the Constitution specifically authorizes a post office, they didn't say bank, but that's what they meant to do. Now, Maryland contends that the word necessary is considered as controlling the sentence so as limiting the right to pass laws for the execution of the granted power to such as are indispensable, necessary, right? That makes sense. That's correct. That's English. But Marshall rejects that. He says, quote, Is it true that this is the sense in which the word necessary is always used? Does it always import an absolute physical necessity so strong that one thing to which another may be termed necessary cannot exist without that other? We think it does not. He goes on. We find it frequently imports no more than that one thing is a convenient or useful or essential to another. End of that quote. All right. I think convenient is substantially different than essential, but let's leave that alone for right now. If necessary means convenient or useful, where does that leave the Constitution's enumerated powers? Let's replace the word necessary with the word convenient and even add useful in there. So now if we take Marshall's revision of the constitution and we take out necessary and proper and replace it with convenient or useful article 1 section 8 clause 18 would then read quote congress has power to make all laws which shall be convenient or useful for carrying into execution the foregoing powers etc 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 convenient or useful is entirely different than necessary and proper i mean it's a wholesale rewriting of the document that's what marshall did he rewrote it unanimous the Supreme Court is unanimous on this and the Supreme Court basically hasn't stopped rewriting it since and continuing to expand federal power beyond the explicit limits granted to it by the states when they ratified the Constitution then man it just gets worse as far as I'm concerned because then the Supreme Court written by Marshall says quote nothing is more common than to use words in a figurative sense end quote i got to slap my head. The founders were speaking figuratively when they wrote the Constitution. It's all one big parable. It's not to be taken literally. How do you even respond to that? Marshall should just say, hey, you know, we like the idea of a bank, and we're going to say it's okay. That would be more honest. But he doesn't do that. He's saying it was figurative language, not literal language. Well, if it's figurative, you can do whatever you want with it, which means it's useless, which is basically what the Supreme Court has done with the Constitution. It gets worse. Supreme Court says, Marshall, quote, The subject is the execution of those great powers, those are the ones that are enumerated, on which the welfare of a nation essentially depends. It must have been the intention of those who gave these powers, the people who ratified the Constitution, to ensure, so far as human prudence could ensure, their beneficial execution. This could not be done by confiding the choice of means to such narrow limits as not to leave it in the power of Congress to adopt any which might be appropriate and which were conducive to the end, end of quote. So again, he's striking out the word necessary and inserting the word appropriate and conducive. The bastardization of these words is just embarrassing, but when your goal is a powerful central government, you can't be embarrassed. Marshall continues, should Congress in the execution of its powers adopt measures which are prohibited by the Constitution or should Congress under the pretext of executing its powers Pass laws for the accomplishment of of objects not entrusted to the government by the enumerated powers. Then it would become the duty, the painful duty of this tribunal, should a case requiring such such a decision come before it, to say that such an act was not the law of the land. He's acting like Congress would never deign to exercise power illegitimately. And if it did, it would pain the Supreme Court to point it out, it's nonsense. Of course, Congress is going to try to expand its power. And the Supreme Court thinks it's so unlikely, it's clearly not for, for the job of reining it back in. And so since Congress doesn't care about what's constitutional, the executive doesn't care about what's constitutional, and the Supreme Court doesn't care about what's constitutional, it's up to the states to rein it in. It's up to individuals to reign it in. The court concludes, in McCulloch versus Maryland, quote, after the most deliberate consideration, it is the unanimous and decided opinion of this court that the act to incorporate the Bank of the United States is a law made in pursuance of the Constitution, end quote. Of course they did. Then they went on to say that Maryland couldn't tax the bank because it's the legitimate power of c- Congress and the power to tax is the power to destroy. But the argument is lost at this point. It doesn't really make any difference what they say after that. So it was one of the first nails in the coffin of the very concept upon which the Constitution was adopted and ratified, this concept of federalism, enumerated and specific powers were given to the Congress, given to the federal government, and the Tenth Amendment, which explicitly states that the powers not granted to the federal government, are retained by the states, or to the people, has been wadded up and tossed out. The Supreme Court was wrong in McCullough, but the states were also wrong in allowing it's to be enforced by accepting the revisions of the constitution made by the supreme court states need to stand up for themselves and individuals need to do the same states should no longer countenance this usurpation of their power under the constitution otherwise the federal government is just going to continue to amass power at the expense of the states and of the individuals the federal government cannot be expected and will not reign in its own power that's up to us rage against the machine is right I encourage everybody to rage against the machine. And I know they're socialist statists who don't understand what they're saying. But they are right in that we need to rage against the machine. But we've got to understand and tell everyone else that the government is the machine. That's what we need to be raging against. Rage against the machine. Rage against the government because they're the ones who have the authority to legally kill you. I'm DK Williams. This has been The Law with DK Williams. And as always, we're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Hey, holler at me with your comments. Find me on Twitter, at Blue Carp. Find me on Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. I want to hear your thoughts. If you have any other cases that you want to talk about, or if you have any thoughts, corrections, whatever, send them my way. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.